This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Nexo.io. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I am Michael Casey. So we're based in New York here and I must say the last few days have been a real eye-opener. The NFT.NYC conference was launched on Tuesday. This is an event that uh, actually began two years ago and it had one little dinky venue in a, a theater in Times Square. Now they have six venues and the place is just exploding with speakers, attendees, and the city itself is awash with NFT symbols. There was billboards taken over in Times Square. There were events all around the city. It's been a star power thing. We've had surprise turnouts by the likes of Aziz Ansari, Chris Rock, Quentin Tarantino dropped his own Pulp Fiction NFTs. There is a sense right now that this phenomenon that we've actually covered quite a bit in a number of episodes in Money Reimagined over the past year is suddenly taking off. It's almost as confusing as ever. It's almost because of the fact that there are so many different projects and so many different ideas that this zeitgeist, it's an exciting indication of what might be, but it's very confusing. So to talk about what all this may mean, I've actually pulled out into this one of my colleagues, Sam Ewan, who is the head of Coindesk Studios, and Sheila, of course, the three of us are just going to have a bit of a chat here about what on earth is going on. Sheila, you know, sorry for not being here. The FOMO is real. It's been something. I, my voice is a little croaky because of some late nights. And Sam, I know that you've sort of like, you were prepared for this and you're ready for it. I think you like me feeling a bit worn out. Caffeinated I was prepared. Not Sam. <laughs> I was prepared and unprepared for it. Right. right. So looking well, forward to tomorrow. Say, I made What's, the what? mistake of not flying out for it and regret it. But I have to say, it's not just New York. At COP26 happening in parallel, we're hearing about NFTs being projected on buildings and having things being minted that are there that are about supporting the environment, supporting climate oceans, uh, whether it's uh, different forms of, of gene therapies, biology, it's like all kinds of things that are meant to show how nature is supporting us. It's really turning out to be a powerful tool for advocacy and activism beyond just the initial place where it started, which was really art and kind of memorabilia. Fascinating to observe. Yeah. Sam, what are, you, what are your first impressions? What's your, your sort of big takeaways from this past week? My big takeaway is the sort of freneticism that happens in Discord communities around NFT comes to real life and it it up levels by 10. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's this opportunity, I think, for people to meet in person, only other people they've seen as avatars. And so when they actually connect, there's there's this communal sort of like love and passion and energy that comes out that is way more than I thought it was ever going to be when I left my house on Monday morning to start this journey. You know, that passion is is so striking, but to many in the outside world, it's still so confusing. They're like, what, what on earth are these things? And I suppose one thing I, you know, because you, you know, come from the creator world, right? What do you think it is that suddenly got people so excited? 
you know, I mean, we can have a conversation about what an NFT actually is. And we've been through that a number of episodes, but I think, yeah, I just like to understand why the degree of enthusiasm and, you know, across all this. Why now, right? Like why now? Why is that an explosion? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because there's this conversion of kind of a creative expression this opportunity with platforms that have caught up. So when you have crypto Twitter and you have Discord and you have Telegram and you have Web3, suddenly there just becomes this sort of idea that we can connect through not sort of our, who we actually are and what we do from a work perspective, but who we want to be. And that's represented often by our PFP or the collections that we have. And so the utility that is the underlying layer of NFTs, I think is where people get really excited. It's not just like, I have this amazing art piece. It's also I'm part of a club and that club is limited. So I think that happens. And then there's a celebration around it. I haven't seen this since Supreme or since, you know, fans of hip hop, like people just come together mm. and they just want to like be a part of the party. They want to make the party. And the other thing I think which is fascinating is how quickly in this space things are moving, right? So in the same way that Dom on Twitter can release something for loot and then 20 minutes later, someone has spun up some app that now visualizes it. We have the same thing here with the example of like the FWB, which I'm a part of, they created a ticketing system that you had to validate that you were, you had enough of the tokens to get into the parties, but then they open sourced that and gave that to everyone else to use. So suddenly everyone now uses the, the collective tool as a kind of generosity because we all want to make it together. WAGMI, you know, is, is the acronym we live by. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that generosity, right? Because it's it's really interesting because you could imagine part of this is about the exclusivity and it's the ownership. Like I own it, which means there's a limited amount. Someone else doesn't own it. There is that division, but that isn't really seeming to be at all intention with this collective generosity around things like tools that can enable various projects to to scale up, to reach, or attract more attention, attract more users potentially. Talk about that cultural phenomenon because it's, it's highly unusual. Yeah, there seems to be a... It sort of takes how can I help to another level. <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone wants to introduce someone to somebody else that can help them because they're also passionate about what they're doing, but they're also passionate about being part of a community of doers. And so I think that we're, we're seeing that. And so it's everything from, you know, I was at a dinner last night. I met a, a woman who is creating a fashion DAO who wants to get connected to brands because she wants to do one of one NFTs that have parallel IRL drop so that if I have the NFT of the shirt, I also get the shirt. You know, and her thing is I came here to meet other brands that might be interested in this influential community I'm building mm. as a way to start conversation. So then, you know, my first thing is, well, I know people in fashion. I'm going to connect you. And suddenly we're on text chains with people who she should be meeting. You know, and I'm just a small player in this, but we were seeing this happen on the sort of mega scale where everyone just kind of likes the idea of, I think, collectivism and success, as opposed to, I think, you know, if you compare it to the battles that are happening with Google and Facebook and everyone trying to drag each other down, that's not the ethos that we're bringing in here. Um, I think there's an opportunity for everyone to succeed as part of a, a movement because we're so, so early in it that no one feels, I think, worried that the jealousy is too real. You worry that at some point, right, this sort of uh, altruistic and sort of very positive perspective end up, ends up sort of cynically being taken over by whoever the big machines are, right? This is a, a, we know this from history and there's a, there's a real desire to avoid that. But then again, the other part of it, I think you could be, it's not entirely altruism and generosity. I think the reality is that these are network effects, right? The value for whatever it is that you're creating is a function of how big the community is. And that is actually just, in some respects, this is a, a real manifestation in a much more sort of like targeted way of the phenomena that really has been the driver of the internet itself, right? That open platforms and open systems, value is created through network effects. 
And here you now have, though, the capacity to do so on a micro level to suddenly, and I think the point you were making there, Sam, how quickly you can do things. Like that, that idea of how, you know, Friends with Benefits just came out and sort of open sourced this new ticketing machine. I mean, the idea that you would deploy a technology and it would sort of suddenly become used by everyone so quickly in a matter of days. That, that's not how technology used to get rolled out before, right? How long did it take before people were driving cars? It's that, I think, that is really compelling here is that I've got an incentive to build a network. My value will come from that. Uh, I, I want to help that network grow. And then when it does, now I've got something that I can build upon as well. This, that idea as well is like once something's in place, then I can start to build other things. There's still so many missing pieces to this. And I was actually fascinated. You know, um, I, I, I've often thought, and you know, Sheila, of course, as, as a lawyer might share this as well. Like, where does the law come into this, right? What, what are my rights? What am I, how does this thing become something that is like, fundamental to that. And there's some very important discussions that were going on around intellectual property and what this all means. And there's lots of missing pieces. I might own the NFT, but what do I actually own with regard to the art in that, in that world? So coming out and defining what those rights are and determining systems that link those is very important. And then the other part of it is like, as we go through that process of thinking about what the legal aspect is, is the chance for us to have an even bigger conversation around the broad idea of property rights in the digital age, that ultimately NFTs could become this building block for essentially what you know, is the translation of a pre-digital economy into this post-digital economy. Because every step through history that has seen these moments, not only of, of economic creation, but also of, of what might be loosely described as democratization, have often come with these sort of big moments in property rights, right? The Magna Carta, was a moment when these you know, aristocrats came to the King William and said, hey, we own land and we want to be able to stand up for that. And that was the first steps towards you know, essentially moving to a constitutional monarchy in the UK. The, the arrival of limited stock companies out of the Netherlands you know, and the idea of stock certificates, that built all this wealth. When China, when Deng Xiaoping transformed China, it was about transferring property rights to its people. And Hernando de Soto, the famous Peruvian economist, has basically made the argument that the difference between wealthy countries and not so wealthy countries historically is because of their ability to actually put some form of legal structure behind those rights and then being able to monetize those, mortgage them, sell them, trade them. Yeah. That's where capital is created. We've not been able to do this in the digital realm because there was no concept of digital scarcity. So you couldn't create digital property. And now we can. If you take that big history and you now plant that into the digital age, there's something really, really powerful here that goes far beyond just board eight yacht club. I think that's just a tour de force. You know, it's a tremendous tour through the history of some of these protectionist tendencies and how you start with creation or a concept of ownership. You then codify that in some fashion. There's usually, in the cases that you cited, there's an external authority that's capable of providing the ability to basically put barriers and boundaries around what ownership means. There is some sort of, let's call it a centralized authority, just to use a, you know, an interesting term that is providing that sort of basis. That's something that we're pushing against in this space. And so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, uh, how this all plays out. Now, we touched briefly on Web3 and Metaverse, and I think we have to go big in these concepts because with the advent of the metaverse, and you're now seeing major tech companies talk about this, like not just Facebook, Microsoft, others, Google 
There's also Magic Leap, which is coming bigger. Sotheby's, Sotheby's created, they, they have their metaverse, right. their that's own right. metaverse. Yeah, and so. the idea around what's interesting about the metaverse, how open is that going to be? Is there going to be a walled garden where to get into that walled garden, Sotheby's or whomever is then guaranteeing you property rights or ownership rights that they are helping you to enforce within their part of the metaverse? Is there going to be a Say I'm a ticketing function, right? Not the one that was used uh, last night, but a ticketing function in the metaverse that requires some kind of buy-in or trade or whatever it is that's very strictly and tightly held. Are we going to see these kinds of institutions, these corporate institutions, rather than external governmental or regulatory or other authorities being the ones to enforce concepts of property right and ownership within the metaverse around something like NFT? I don't know how y'all feel about that. Recalling that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would kind of appropriate that word and sort of say, I'm going to build it, Facebook's metaverse. Sam, what do you think of that word? What does it mean to you? Because it, it's, it's an interesting debate going on around who should own it, what does it actually represent? And it began with Neil Stevenson, actually. I think what's interesting for me is the metaverse still doesn't exist. Yet everyone in the brand world, everyone in the media world is talking as if it's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we have not figured out most of the large problems that come with true digital experience living a digital life. We've been already living in the metaverse. We are completely going offline and online seamlessly between our phones, our computers, and our our real lives. And I think what we're seeing, especially on the NFT side, is that when you enable badge value and utility, people find more reasons to connect with each other. You know, the beauty of Snapchat wasn't that Snapchat was a better protocol. It just created messaging opportunities for young people to connect with each other and put a visual layer and a digital layer on it. And then when they added augmented reality features, you know, suddenly I could turn my face into an avatar very similar to what we're seeing on the NFT side. People didn't then adapt it because, oh, I don't have to be myself. I can be now who I want to be. And so I think we've seen little hints of it. Uh, I don't believe Zuckerberg can build the ecosystem and the society that everyone wants to be in. But I also don't doubt his opportunity to create something that a billion people will engage in. And if he can create a financial ecosystem that supports people through Ethereum, through Bitcoin, however he ends up bringing that on chain, I think then there's opportunity there that we shouldn't discount just because he is a sort of curious figure. You know, he plays the role, I think, that a lot of people see of him of being the sort of overly controlling tech overlord. But the fact is, he's trying something and it may succeed or it may fail. But that combined with looking backwards at Google Glass or Snapchat Spectacles or some of the augmented reality stuff that Apple's working on, all of that is pushing us forward and forward to this hybrid reality, a mixed reality of real and virtual. And now that we have the opportunity for economics and the kind of cultural and financial ecosystem, then you can see that people will start to be comfortable blurring the lines between what's real and digital. And maybe that we won't think of it as being distinct opportunities. It just is what we are. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. Looking to make the most of your crypto assets? Nexo.io's got you covered. Grow your wealth securely with Nexo's high-yield interest accounts. 
Buy crypto on your terms directly within Nexo's platform and start earning daily compounding interest right away. Get the cash you need without selling your crypto from just 6.9% APR. Instantly swap between 100 crypto and traditional currency pairs. And don't worry, Nexo is insured against losses up to $375 million. Get the most of your crypto at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. You know, one of the things that you were, you're talking about this is sort of like ability and willingness to connect. It is this collectivist kind of approach. It's not unique to, to the NFTs. And I've always thought that crypto should be about this because it is a mechanism for us to figure out how we collectively govern something, Sheila's favorite word, and, <laughs> and therefore allow us to actually come together as a community. However, the ethos, certainly amongst some people in the Bitcoin community is quite different, right? It's like, I've got mine, mate. Don't worry about me. I'm, I'm looking after them. I've got my stash. Right. <laughs> it's a sort of a very protective, singular notion of narrow definition of human rights, as opposed to a sort of collective common interest. And we'll collectively. So I think NFTs almost being not the antithesis, but certainly showing a very different direction for what some might sort of say is the stereotype of the Bitcoin bro. You got any thoughts on that, <laughs> Sheila? It's really interesting. Well, I, I do, but I want to first just add another layer, which is, you know, we've kind of catapulted ahead in this uh, pandemic time when certain parts of the economy, knowledge workers and others have gotten so used to being in a digital environment, being on Zoom, dialing in, making new connections, hiring, firing, doing whatever you have to do online, creating these communities, whether it's through uh, language or whether through visual means, right? Like online. That's not true for everybody. There are people who throughout this entire pandemic have still been in with much more you know, anxiety and stress and, and horror, frankly, have still been operating in a very brick and mortar kind of way. And so what we're seeing is I think we've catapulted in some parts of the population a decade ahead in terms of the psychological readiness to engage in these spaces. It's moved well beyond gaming into anybody. If you dialing in like right now, we're all dialing in on a Zoom call, right, to record this podcast. And so this TV show, we're so familiar with that. We're so familiar with that kind of modality of being, but not everybody is what I think is interesting is not only are you creating kind of this generational, and I mean generational in terms of like when you came to crypto, not like your age, but like when you came to it, were you an early adopter? Were you kind of a middle-y kind of person? Or are you going to be late you know, to it? A lot of that's going to depend on your comfort and familiarity influencing digital environment. And so as you mature in any space, you tend to become a little more conservative, let's call it. You tend to become a little more protective of what you have. And so I think the Bitcoin bro model, as much as we like kind of poke a little fun, the reality is they've been in that space for a lot longer and they have an understanding of what it is, what it is for them. Yeah, I do think it's like, I've got mine, I'm good. I now feel like I need to like take a step back a little bit and new things are coming up, but there's a maturation curve for all these things. And what we shouldn't forget is that there are a lot of people who still aren't digitally fluent and it has nothing to do with their access to the technology, the infrastructure, or even their ability to learn. It has to do with the way that they think about going about their daily lives. And that is a very different experience for, mm. for all sorts of people. I do think there's something interesting about evangelism. I think back six years ago where for my, my daughter and my nephew, I gave them paper wallets with Bitcoin on it. You know, $50, which is now $200, let's just say. But it was because I was interested in something and I wanted other people to be too. And part of me getting them in was telling my parents and my brother about what this thing was, you know, and then not getting it, then slowly getting it. And, and I felt like that was a, a generosity within the community of like, oh, we're kind of all have this little bit of this inside knowledge, this club. And I think what's interesting last night at, at a dinner when we were talking about the board apes and, and I said, oh, I'm going to try to do a GoFundMe to get my friend an ape because no one can afford them now. And he said, oh, I'll well, take out your wallet. 
and he pulls out his MetaMask and he has, you know, a third of, or not even, he had like 13% of an eight by the board ape coin. And mm. he was like, oh, I'll transfer you, you know, 0.02% of this. Mm. So that you can feel like you have a little bit of ownership in something. It ended up getting canceled because gas fees. But, oh, yeah. you know, which is another interesting thing. The whole other channel. And at the NYC, the gas fees are, oh, are hurting the industry quite, quite as much as they are. But it was, it was just an interesting play of, mm. oh, you want to you come in? Let's go. In the same way that another friend of mine, when she wanted to get in, I was like, great, set up a wallet and I'm just going to send you an NFT so you can start. And I'm going to send you one that, that has an active Discord because the art is one thing, but the community is really the thing. I still think that's what we're seeing a lot of now. I'm, I am very interested in when that starts getting territorial or if, if it gets territorial. But right now, it still feels like early crypto yeah. of like, I'm yeah, going to help you does. out by sending you something. Yeah, I'm loving. I've been following the coven. Have you seen these witches that are being spun up? So it's really cool. It's like a very like, you know, empowerment kind of thing. People are just, it's just, there's so many of these things happening. This is only one example, but it's such a fun, generative, creative, community oriented you know, model. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. It, it does feel like those early days. It is. The, the religious analogy is actually a pretty good one here. I oh. think evangelism is a great way to think about this, Sam, because I read this fascinating piece, one of my newsletters, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was comparing Bitcoin maximalism to the views of people in the ETH space, describing them from the perspective of different types of religions. And some religions are very exclusionary, right? <laughs> they, you know, I mean, with all due respect for, for my many, many Jewish friends, it is a religion that is like narrowed by the fact of it being you know, ethnically tied, you know, as opposed to, you know, the Christians or early Christians want to just evangelize and spread to the whole world. And then different versions within all of that, right? And sort of this description of a certain type of extreme Bitcoin maximalist who's like, doesn't want anybody else to even get involved, as opposed to like, no, my interest is in absolutely broadly spreading. I think most Bitcoiners actually are in the latter crowd. But, and certainly the fact that you mentioned that those early wallets, uh, it got me thinking about, about Roger Ver in the early days. And now he's sort of not necessarily as loved by the community, but in the early days, he was called Bitcoin Jesus. And it's literally what he was doing. <laughs> Right, oh giving God, people Bitcoin because it was an act of generosity, but it was also this evangelistic thing. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were to look back in time, the number of Bitcoin millionaires that were actually kind of seeded by Roger Ver, and therefore his actual role in spreading and growing this thing is actually really pretty big. And I think like when you multiply that out, and this is why people have a hard time understanding this phenomena, because they are exponential. It's not just Roger Ver doing it. It's all of these people in the NFT space all acting like that. And so it's just explosive in terms of how it grows. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's most compelling about it. But you just mentioned gas fees, Sam, and we unfortunately we have to go there because it is, <laughs> we do. it is an infrastructural issue. The thing that's frustrating for some people who look at this and say, well, I know it's coming. We're going to get there one day and we have to talk about something that doesn't actually exist right now because it really isn't very feasible until we can actually transact more fluidly without having to pay these costs to do so. Anything that you got from this conference that made you sense that there will be solutions? I mean, obviously there's other non-Ethereum chains that are more fluid and so forth, but. Well, and yeah. prior to that, Sam, too, I mean, we, we've talked about gas fees before on the show, but we kind of did it in passing. So can you just walk through, like, why is this a limiting factor? Why was your transaction not able to go through yesterday, right, with this boarded yacht coin? It'd be really helpful, I think, for some Yeah, good, good for our, our listeners to get their heads around some of these yeah. things, yeah. All right. So, I mean, gas really is buying your share of the computing power to complete a transaction. And the reality is the more people fighting for those transactions, the more you have to pay to get the attention in order to do so. 
what has been interesting is Ethereum, which I think you know so many people look at as this this undercurrent layer that's really going to power so much of the metaverse and the NFT ecosystem. And it's not it's taxed, you know, and it wasn't built to handle the amount of transactions we're dealing with right now. And then you think about how many people are pumping SHIB and all these other things, which also are running on Ethereum. And suddenly it's just there's only so much attention that I can get. So it just means things that you know you would hope to pay a ten dollar fee on to flip an NFT. Now we're asking for $300, $400. There's things I've been wanting to do for weeks that I have not been able to because gas on that transaction has not fallen below $200 for something that has $170 value. So there's an inherent problem with that. I think that we have to start thinking of the NFT community as sort of the largest multi-chain membership club, you know, mm-hmm. where it's okay to have your Tezos NFT or your crypto.com NFT or your, you know, your Solana NFT. And we don't kind of look down on that. I think there's a little, still a little bit of like OG you know, protectionism that says, oh, I'm, you know, I want to be on something that OpenSea recognizes because that's actually where I can, you know, show it off. And it goes in natively into my virtual gallery. I think, you know, those are things that are getting in the way a little bit. It is interesting that at NFT NYC, it's, you know, almost never been harder to mint an NFT, to flip an NFT, to buy an NFT or to evolve an NFT because the gas fees are prohibitive for most people. You know, if you're buying a, a Fidenza and it's 150 ETH to get in, okay, you know, like you don't mind the fee. But when you're trying to do something which is 0.02 ETH and the gas alone is 0.03, yeah. you know, you're paying a tax that's higher than any Ticketmaster has ever charged you, you know, or Airbnb has ever charged you to do a fee. And that's limiting in a big way. And we know, to Michael's point, we know we're getting there, but it literally cannot happen soon enough because I think it is creating issues in the secondary market. The secondary market is where things really accrue value. And if people can't sort of go from 0.02 to 0.06, you know, and then from 0.06 to, to 1.4, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it I is an upside, right? You need, you need, that's the promise, right? That you're going to get this yeah. upside to it. The solutions we know are, I think, probably like a number of them, but the, the main ones are you know, layer two solutions that allow for transactions to take essentially off chain, but be constantly proven. And it's still drawing upon the blockchain as the sort of the proof of all this. And the other one is interoperability across chain. So that the world garden issue you're talking about, are we all on OpenSea or are we not, gets there. Now, I, I think the former is a development process. It's the work that needs to go in. It's also the, the miners and the validators of these networks moving up and getting comfortable with these other you know, chains. And that, that's actually a political and a governance thing. But in terms of the interoperability, like, there's tech that's certainly there. There's the bridges and there's the cosmoses and the polka dots and all these guys trying to draw things together. But I also wonder whether there is economic resistance as well, right? The natural instinct of any startup is to, to have a monopoly, is, is to be the only one. OpenSea doesn't really want to have transportability to these other sites, right? If they thought bigger, they might understand that that's how they eventually get more value because that's how the whole space grows. But their shareholders are wanting them to like, the instinctively, and this is the way VCs talk, like protect your IP, right? Yeah, I don't know, both of you. I mean, Sheila, you know, again, the, the IP law, this, this is something that you've, you've thought about. Does the NFT industry just fall victim eventually to the same sort of monopolistic desires that, that sort of drive capitalism? Or is there, because of its very nature and this open story we've been talking about, something that actually does get interoperable and therefore becomes, essentially, it deals with that gas problem by just being everywhere? Well, there's a number of different things I think to unpack there, right? So there's like the technical capacity and ability to basically create this value and to do that incrementally, which Sam was talking about. I think it's important. You don't expect everything to go from 0.2 to 
7 billion ETH, right? Like you have, there's like a whole process there and something it, it grows in value incrementally and things differentiate. So some things are going to stay at 0.2 and they're going to end up at 0.3, you know, a year from now, others are going to really blow up. And if you can't engage in the transaction and flip, essentially, you don't have a chance to prove that value. So I think Sam's point about secondary market is a really good one. It's not about the demand. It's about the literal ability to engage in a transaction that you want to engage in because the costs are just too prohibitive. So that, that's a problem that I think it's not about intellectual property or ownership or anything. You, the, the point is you don't want to own it anymore. You want to give it to somebody else and they want it more than you want it. And that's what a market is. And if you can't actually engage in that transaction, then fail, right? Just fail, generally just fail. So that's a huge issue. Separately from that, I think, is the question of, let's say you do want to retain ownership. You want to prove that you are the owner and someone else is not, whether that's the previous owner, whether it's some other imposter who's developing a kind of fake or whatever. I actually think the best analogy for this is really fashion, because what you're looking at is not a forgery of a painting, which, you know, only a handful of people can do that effectively. It's very hard to get, you know, fine art forgeries through the market. It's not that easy. Fake fashion is, I mean, whatever. There's like you walk down the street in any city and there's like a whole place. There's a part of the city where you can just go buy fake knockoff, whatever it is. That's what I think people are talking about when talk about intellectual property. It's not the ability to create a secondary market and prove that the buyer now owns the thing the seller legitimately wanted to sell them. It's really more the seller, the, the person owns something and 10 other people are claiming to own that same thing. And how do you prove that yours is the real one and the other nine are just nonsense, right? At the same time, as everyone knows, there's this interesting tension because part of the knockoff imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So the knockoff market, if you will, sometimes enhances the value of the thing in and of itself. So there's often this desire for uh, folks, and I'll, again, fashion, of course, no one will ever admit this, but there's kind of sometimes, especially at the beginning, this desire to say, my thing is so desirable that people want to have it. Look how cool it is, especially when it's newer. And then over time, you're like, now it really is important that I can distinguish mine from that fake one, right? So how do you do that? That's where I think the question becomes one of legal rights, property rights, IP, et cetera. But I want to kind of narrow the focus because it's not about all these things. It's about this specific use case, I think, particularly. And in many cases, honestly, we're not just quite at the maturation of the market yet where this is a huge issue. It's going to be eventually, but I do think that the law is sufficiently evolved in these other cases I mentioned, art, fashion, whatever where brand recognition, these kinds of things, right? Trade secrets, trade IP, all these kinds of things. I think it'll start with brands protecting their NFTs first. I think you'll get a lot of this coming from, they have the legal manpower to do this, the firepower rather to do this. There'll be some protectionism happening there in the brand space that'll trickle over, I think, into sort of more ordinary creators and, and owners. It's not something I honestly, that keeps me up at night because I feel like the, the Gatsby's alone are stalling the development so much, honestly that the law has time to catch up. And maybe that's sort of like sad, but I think it's also fair to say. So, but Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> I mean, two, right, two, two things come to mind for me, which is one, and, and Mike, I think you, you, you hit on it, which is, and goes back to our earlier conversation, when the metaverse, whatever it be, will be, you know, or the series of metaverses I will, will be, <laughs> um, we're going to need interoperability across chain because, you know, if you bought a piece of art on one blockchain and a piece of art on another, you still want to show them in your room. In the metaverse so whatever that middleware layer is going to be it's, it's going to come and there, it's just a matter of time before someone solves it and probably will make a fortune doing so so i do think that everyone's i think okay with it i think the question was which will be where will the marketplaces actually pop up you know and which ones will sort of go away because they don't have use and that's a normal market dynamic that we're used to in fashion or in real estate or restaurants or anything like that i'm hoping that this is a temporary thing we all the, the gas issues that we all sort of forget about soon 
I think, Sheila, though, you bring up a really, really interesting point. So this week alone, Nike came out and talked about, you know, all of the different patents around digital goods that they've been writing for years, way before people were really talking about NFTs. And then you think of a company like Artifact, which has made amazing virtual sneakers, but they're still Air Force One. You know, and so what happens when Nike really comes because my character in the popular game is now wearing the artifact shoe, not the Nike shoe. And someone says, you actually didn't create something unique and new. You created my thing. You just happened to do a 3D rendering of it. And I think, so I think that's actually a, a more fascinating one because that's where, you, you know, we see in the fashion world all the time, the cease and desists around, exactly. you know, people who borrow lines of dresses or whatever it may be. And right now, because it feels very Wild West, you know, anyone can really mint anything that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens when we start saying, oh, we have to pull this off because it really does violate a basic intellectual property ownership issue. Which is something outside of the technology. It's like it exists out there in the old world of law. We've got a little bit of time just to, to wrap up in a moment, but I just wanted to pick on something else that I was thinking about as Sheila was talking. And it was about like this being able to absolutely prove that this is this unique thing. And somewhat interesting about this moment right now with NFTs and these communities is that the instinct to do that is not just the artist or the brand or the creator. It's also the owner because of the fact that this avatar that I have is now intrinsically linked to my identity and how I actually behave and act online. So if anybody's imitating and knocking off my, the avatar that I own, it might've been created by a different artist, but now it's my NFT, then my identity is actually being challenged by that person. So there's this interesting alignment now. It's typically, I suppose, the, the Gucci bag owner wants, doesn't want to be seen with a knockoff and wants to be able to prove they have a Gucci bag. But I think this is so much more important because it, it is this idea that that NFT is now your ticket, your membership, your right to actually participate and interact with this particular community, this club. The incentive in some respects to get the law and the actual tech to come together in a way that proves this and makes it clear is so strong because everybody has, has an interest in, in maintaining it. Is that fair read, Sam? It is. And I think it, you're pulling on something which is even more fascinating for me, which is the fact that wallet identity is absolute, hmm. you know? And so we've always thought of, oh, my screen name plus my password. And that's something that gets hacked constantly and I have to keep changing this and that, but right. But my wallet is my wallet and and assuming I'm pretty good on security and protecting Mm. my C phrases, I take that with me wherever I go. Mm. And to your point, Michael, it's like, there are people who are walking around New York city today who are wearing masks of their punk or masks of their ape because they know that's their social value is being identified as character X. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But there's another side of it, which is character X may also be worth $10, $10 million, $20 million, $30 million in the in the NFT space and has a, a secure need to protect their identity. Right. You know, so they want to be opinionated, they want to be a, a thought leader in the space, they want to be a creator and an influencer, but they also know that that it exposes them differently, which is the problem with you know with crypto. Um, you know, you didn't, you know, no one looks at me and knows what I hold from Bitcoin or Ethereum, but if I'm walking around because I'm my board ape, you know, 426, yeah. there's a value I'm wearing on my face by doing that, that I think yeah. also really o- opens us up to some interesting potential opportunities. That freaks me out, future. to be honest, from a physical exactly. perspective, right? It's like, whoa. And I'll just say, Michael, just to your point about the Gucci bag, I mean, all jokes aside, you haven't been in some of these spaces, let me tell you, there are bags, there are Birkins and others that are absolutely entrance into clubs, 100% the same way NFTs are, it is no different. And so I think there is a differentiation in exclusivity it's linked i think 
tragically, but it's linked to costs and to, and to perceived value, right? And to scarcity, but it's no different. I think it's exactly the same thing. So I just wanted to land that point because I think it's important to note that this is not the first time we're seeing this kind of phenomenon. It happens with luxury goods as a general matter, right? Some people own because of the pleasure of, of owning and some own as a status symbol, some own for both, you know, and there's an element. I think that what's different here is that unlike in that kind of hard good, physical good space, there isn't necessarily the same ability to create a really vibrant community around it because there isn't a digital component. But that's exactly what I think some of these brands are trying to do is to say, you already take pride in being an owner of a X, whatever it is, usually sneakers, a particular shoe. We now have the ability for you to digitize that via this NFT model and interact in a metaverse or a digital space with other like-minded folks, like cars, right? It's not just kind of like the, on the freeway and you're kind of doing the whole thing. It's like you have a space you can congregate pretty, again, to, earlier, my earlier point about the divide on this being one that's really important to maintain and, and hold in our, in our heads. But nevertheless, if you're familiar in it and kind of fluent in digital environments, you have a chance to build those communities out. This is why I actually think that what social media companies are doing is, is really powerful, Sam, to your point, and they're going to get this traction because they spend a lot of time thinking about far more abstract and hard to crystallize communities around vague interests or whatever it is, right? You're living in the same place or whatever. This is something very concrete, and there is a price of admission that you can prove that you've engaged with, which proves your legitimacy to enter the community. Wow, the, the scale on that is something that I think is just going to explode once we get some of these other technical and other components into place. Fashion has such a social value to it. I mean, the, the kind of Christian Louboutin Discord channel would be amazing to think of, you know, everyone who, yeah. who gets in has the ability to influence their other people. And, and not that I think that's where they're going to go. But I think that there is, I think you're right. It, it's always been, I've, I see it, I spy it from across the room. You know, you give that it's nod because I, I know exactly. I know what you're rocking right there. The and I think class, that there's, exactly. yeah. And so I think that is happening right now in this space and where it evolves too. I think, you know, the amount of brands that are paying attention to that are, are yeah. excessive. One more comment I want to make on this, which is you mentioned religion earlier, Michael. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't know that it's Diwali week. Happy Diwali, everybody. Very excited about ah, that. I also it. think we have yet to see the advent entities into Bollywood. That is going to be a thing. <laughs> like when that finally takes off, I mean, whoo, hold on to your seat. Yeah. It's going to be a dance singing marathon. <laughs> It's going to be amazing. So, so what I was thinking about as you were talking about this, though, Sam, is like, I was thinking about my daughter, who is a, a junior at the School of Visual Arts. She's into animation. So she's totally, and all of her life, she was into anime and, and cartoons and something that most of the kids at her school weren't into. They were into sports and other things. You take her to Comic Con, and there's the other kid that's wearing the JoJo outfit. And there's, they've all got these almost secret, literally secret handshakes and nods and faces, all these yeah. expressions. And I was like, my God, finally, my daughter has found her tribe, right? And now she's at SVA where everybody's a member of that tribe. And it's like, but the, but the point I think that's interesting about that is that hopefully the great variety that explodes out of this, and, and, and the, again, this NFT.NYC conference is a manifestation of that, means that the brands aren't, you know, the established brands, whether you like them or not, aren't going to have the same capacity, perhaps, to sort of drive those choice factors and those exclusivities and everything else, that these own uniquely forming sort of spontaneous realms of exclusivity that maybe reflect your taste, whether you are into anime or whether you're into sports, whatever it is. So you've now got a community of like-minded people who share your values. There's a real possibility there that I find really quite inspiring because I can have multiple communities. I might be interested in sport, but I'm also might be interested in, you know, medieval literature or something. 
And, and I can form these communities around that and behave in ways and pour value into that that, that validates everything. So I, I find that there's, again, I don't know who knows where it's all going, but I feel as if there's something exciting about the nature of human sort of organizational you know, desire here, how we actually do organize ourselves as, as communities is one of the most, the coolest things. I didn't mean to have the last word, but I- <laughs> It was a good one. Uh, apologies for sort of seizing the microphone, but I am going to wrap it up here. Thank you very much, Sam. This was going to be fun with you. Sheila, as always, the, the master of, of multiple different ideas in your head. You've always got insights that I, I never imagined. It's always a pleasure. And thank you, all of you, listeners and viewers, depending on how you're watching this or reading this, listen to it. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Sam Ewan. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 